let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we have been assaulted in many ways by your love this morning. Lord, we thank you for the depth and the breadth and the height and the width of your love. We thank you for how far it stretches to save even sinners such as I, such as all of us. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you have given us your spirit. Thank you that your spirit convicted us of sin and that illumined us to see the light of your gospel. We pray this morning that your spirit would help us to see truth, would help us to understand your word and would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever got a job that ended up being way different than you expected when you first got that job? Might have happened when you were young, when you were still going to school, and you're even having a paper route might have been different than you expected, or one of those jobs that you were um, in when you were uh, in university studying. I remember when I was between college and seminary, I got a job at, of all places, if you know me, a flower shop. It was a, a brand new chain of stores. I was studying in Edmonton at that time that had opened up, and the owners were kind of distantly related um, to my wife, and they were just expanding, just getting their business going, and they needed some help. And uh, so even though I didn't, at that point, know a rose from a cactus, I uh, came in to help out. I thought I'd be, you know, just kind of doing some odd things, maybe sweeping some floors, maybe unpacking some boxes of flowers, those sort of things. But little did I know. I remember on the very first day, on the very first morning, I was working with the kind of the manager of the stores, and a customer came in, and I just thought, oh, you know, she's going to handle that customer, and, and, uh, and uh, she'll just uh, uh, do whatever that customer wants or make whatever that customer wants made up. But to my surprise the manager and the owner of the stores kind of turned at me when this lady said, I need a Rose Bowl. And I'm going, well, there's Rose Bowls up on the shelf there. I can give you one of those. But what she wanted was a rose in that Rose Bowl that had to have a bow around it and some baby's breath and other green stuff inside it. And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm hooped. I have no idea what what I'm supposed to be doing here. Now, if you knew me well, you'd know I haven't got an artistic bone in my body. I like football, you know, I like grunting. But here I was trying to make something look dainty and pretty. You know, I actually ended up getting done with that Rose Bowl. It took me a little longer than what it was supposed to take, and that customer was very patient with me. But over the, I ended up working in that flower shop off and on and in other flower shops during my education for a number of years and actually got to know flowers pretty well and actually got to quite enjoy it. But that job ended up being different than I expected it to be. Well, there's a character in the Bible that was in for a lot more than he expected when he took the job as well. This man was a prophet. That was his job. That's what he was called by God to do. But on his first day, God didn't tell him to speak to a church group. 
speak to a youth group, or even to preach a, a sermon. Instead, he told the prophet to get married. And if that wasn't shocking enough, God told him to marry a promiscuous woman. I'm sure that's not what this prophet envisioned in his job description. Before I get into Hosea's life, which is the character that we're going to talk about, you need to know that we're starting a new series of messages today. Mostly from now to the uh, middle of December and then picking up in January again. Now there are going to be some exceptions like next week when we have the induction and Thanksgiving Day. But most of the time we're going to be doing a quick overview of the minor prophets. The minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament in your Bible. And we're going to take only one sermon per book to look at the message of each of these prophets. Now, if you've been at this church for a number of years you, and you realize it's not just going to be me doing these, these messages, but Pastor Wayne, you're going to say, how is he going to get through one book in one Sunday? <laughs> so you can be in prayer for him and he's going to do it. I have confidence that he can. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be studying over the next number of weeks these uh, wonderful books of the Bible. And I think this is going to be an important series for us. It'll not only get you familiar with some of the books you may have never read or may know very little about, but it'll also have a lot to tell you about who God is. Who God is. His, when we think of prophets, we think of judgment. And we're going to learn about judgment, yes, but we're also going to learn about God's mercy and God's grace and God's compassion and God's faithfulness. We're just saying about God's love. Those wonderful themes that we're so familiar with about who God is. Well, these books are called the minor prophets, only because they're shorter in length than the major prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. But that doesn't mean they're less important. It's not like a, a minor league hockey team where the players are not quite as good as the major league team. Like when my Winnipeg Jets left and they got the Manitoba Moose, not quite the same. But this is different. This message is important. Someone has said they're minor prophets with a major message. G. Campbell Morgan, a British preacher from early in the 1900s, said when he began to study the minor prophets, he expected to hear stern, hard prophets thundering against sin. He said he did find that, but more, more than expected even. But the supreme thing is that the God with whom these men were intimate were known by them to be a God of tender love, of infinite compassion, angry because he loves, but dealing in wrath on the basis of his love. He said it's the heartbeat of God that throbs through these passages. And so we want to spend some time over the next number of weeks looking at the heartbeat of God through the minor prophets. What is it that God wants to teach us through these short but very pointed Old Testament books. Some great nuggets of truths in these books. And, and, and we want to uh, dig up what they are and how these truths can help us here as Christians in the 21st century. So turn again, if, you're, if you close your Bible from what Pastor Wayne read before, turn your books again to the book of Hosea. The first of the minor prophets. To help us understand where this um, and the minor prophets fit into God's revelation, I just need to give you some quick background. Much of the Old Testament centers around, as you know, God's relationship with his people, his special people, Israel. 
to whom he makes promises and, and covenants. And we see how those covenants carry through during the time of the Old Testament. And it also centers around land, the promised land. So the first five books of the Bible are kind of God's way of he cho- chooses his people and then he, he eventually gets them to the brink of coming into this promised land that he's been talking about. And then when you get to Joshua, these chosen people arrive in the promised land. They take out all the other nations, or at least most of the other nations, and they are in. They occupy the land. Then comes Judges, where the, Israels, where the Israelites didn't drive out all the nations like God had told them to, and it began this whole cycle of disobedience. And the people cry out, and then God raises up someone, he raises up a judge to deliver his people, only to have the cycle start all over again. And those last verses of Judges summarize that sad time in Israel's history. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A sad commentary on those times. Well, a man named Samuel is the last of these judges, but it wasn't long before the Israelites, they wanted a king just like all the other nations. And so God gives them a king, which is the start of his establishment of a kingdom. And so God gives them Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And when Solomon becomes king, Israel as a nation is at its high point. They are God's people, in God's land, under God's rule. All is good. But even that doesn't last Solomon disobeys God by marrying foreign women. He sets up idols all over the place. And so Israel is eventually, from this high point where they're all united, they're divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom kept the name of Israel. Yet during this time, God is not silent. He hasn't left them. His his voice remains. His voice is still heard. And his voice is heard through these men called prophets. There's a succession of kings, and it's during this time that the prophet, all the prophets do their work, serving as the voice of God, starting with Elijah and Elisha, and going all the way through and ending with Malachi. Which brings us to Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel also called Samaria for its capital, and and Ephraim sometimes for the name of the biggest tribe there. And he prophesied right around the middle of the 8th century B.C. So that's kind of a bit of background. But there's one thing that makes Hosea unique from all the other prophets. His prophecy happens through the events of his own life. Most of the prophets, God just gave them a word from the Lord and they spoke it. Not Hosea. His home life actually becomes the message of God to his people. You see that right in in verse 2 of chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, so when he first spoke, this is his first day, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so God tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman. Why? Well, he tells us, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so the message of this book is played out through Hosea's marriage and his children. 
He becomes a, a symbol or an object lesson of what God wants to tell the nation of Israel. And so Hosea here represents God, while Israel represents the harlot. Hosea symbolizes God, the faithful husband and the father, while his wife symbolizes Israel, the unfaithful harlot. And so Hosea's marriage then becomes an acted-out parable of God's relationship to Israel. God makes Hosea live the tragedy of Israel's unfaithfulness by marrying a harlot. It's a real-life story with real-life people that are ordained by God to show Israel and us the consequences of disobedience. Now, at this point in Israel's history, you could characterize the times as as the best of times and the worst of times. Israel was quite well off, um, both materially and politically, Um, But the issue for God was not that stuff. No, God looks at the heart. That's all outside stuff. The issue for God was their spiritual state. They did not have a heart for God in any way, shape, or form. And it's a loyal, devoted, trusting, faithful heart that God wants from his people over everything else. And that's what he addresses here. Israel had prostituted themselves by engaging in idol worship. They were committing every conceivable sin. Isaiah describes the times pretty graphically in his prophecy. He says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighted down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it. Israel was utterly evil. Their hearts were totally against God. Outwardly, looked fine, looked great. But inwardly, they were rotten to the core. This isn't much different from the times we live in, is it? Outwardly, even in this economic times, materially, our country is still doing okay. But morally, we're on a downward spiral. Just need to read the news. The famous Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who died this past year, he addressed the, Har- the graduates of Harvard back in 1978, and he was talking about life in the West. And this is what he said. He said, we've turned our backs upon the spirit and embraced all that is material with excessive and unwarranted zeal. Sound familiar? We live in these same kinds of times. The culture Hosea spoke to parallels ours. And just in case you thought that the church was kind of off the hook, we're kind of, you know, we're not affected by any of that stuff, we have to remember that Hosea speaks to Israel, speaks to the church for what, what we would be. People who thought they were spiritual, that's who Hosea is addressing. And so as we go through the story, don't look at it only as a story. Ask yourself if you as a Christian are faithful to God or if you have given lip service to God while actually embracing and and chasing after your own comfort and and success with excessive zeal. Unwarranted and excessive zeal. If that's your life and if you profess to be a Christian, this passage should speak to us and say, be careful. You are in danger of committing spiritual adultery. And so we would all be wise to give our ear to the minor prophet with a major message. Well, 
Let's see what happens in Hosea's life and what this tells us about how God acts towards a faithless people. What is God's view of what's going on? That's what we're interested in. The first thing we see is God's righteous punishment for sin. After Hosea marries Gomer, we read that she conceives children. Look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu with the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I'll have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battles, horse, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Loruhama, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Am I, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's just stop there because these children are an important part of the story. Not because of anything they do. We don't read much about what they're like or what they do. But because of their names. Remember, Hosea's life was a parable. And in the Hebrew culture, names have, still have a, a special meaning. Even more special when God is involved in naming of the children like he is here. It says the Lord told Hosea what to name all these children. Do you notice that? In verse 4, and verse 6, and verse 9. The names of Hosea's children were significant. They signified how God would judge Israel. The first child is named Jezreel, which means, I will scatter. Why that name? Well, God tells us there in verse 4, for I will put an end to this kingdom of the house of Israel. He says he will literally scatter the people. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, we know that that happened just a few years later when the Assyrians came in and overthrew Israel in 722 B.C. And the people were exiled, they were scattered all over the place. Then they have a second child in verse 6, a daughter who God tells them to name Lo-Ruhama and says why again, for he will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. This is the second judgment that God pronounces through the names of Hosea's children. Lo-Ruhama in Hebrew means no compassion or no mercy or no pity. Through this name, God is saying a time is coming when he will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. You start to see God's judgment for their sin. Finally, they have another son, and God tells Hosea to name him Lo-Amai. And here we have the final blow of God's judgment. The name means not my people. God says there in verse 9, You are not my people, and I am not your God. I can't conceive of any Worse words from the voice of God. He totally threatens to disassociate himself totally from the chosen nation, his chosen people, his adopted children. By naming Hosea and Gomer's children, God pronounces his judgment on Israel. They'll be scattered, they'll no longer be recipients of God's mercy, and worst of all, they'll no longer be his people, and he won't be their God. Unbelievable. That's the same ominous note, if you think about it, that thousands, that millions of people will hear on the day of judgment. 
you are not my people and I am not your God. For us who are believers, that should cause us to plead with people to repent and to turn to Christ. She says that in chapter 2, verse 2, contend or, or plead with your mother, contend. We need to be doing that so that people on the judgment day don't hear that from God. We want them to hear, I am your God and you are my people forever. We learn in this very graphic way that God does not look kindly at sin. He does not just turn a blind eye and you know, ignore it when people sin. Sin must be punished. And God uses this relationship between Hosea and Gomer to show this fact. He will not tolerate sin. He will not leave spiritually, spiritual adultery unpunished. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 13, paint a stark picture of the sins that the harlot has committed. And it shows us what God will do to people who aren't faithful to him. You can read those on your own later on this afternoon if you want. How were they unfaithful? How did they sin? Well, the list is huge. Chapters 4 to 14, which I'm not going to um, go into in detail, is filled with ways that Israel has committed with spiritual adultery. It's just filled with their sins and what God will do. The beginning of chapter 4 summarizes it well, though, before it goes on to list the details. Turn to chapter 4 and just look at verses 1 and 2. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Do you hear echoes of the Ten Commandments there? In verse 2 especially, deception. You've got talks there about lying, murder, stealing, adultery. So their adultery can be summarized in the fact that they continually broke God's law. And if you go on to read, the core of their sin is adultery, which breaks not just the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th commandments there, but also the 1st and 2nd commandments. They deserted God for a host of other gods. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, You have forgotten the law of your God. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, They have rebelled against my law. That's what the essence of sin is. Breaking God's standard. Sin is lawlessness, First John tells us. If you're not a Christian, I wonder if you see yourselves, see yourself as a lawbreaker. All of us have broken God's law. And because of that, we are subject to God's righteous and just judgment. And here's the serious part. When we reject God's law, we reject him. And listen, it, it becomes a personal attack against God. He is completely holy and we have violated his perfect standard. And when it comes, we come to God's courtroom, Romans talks about this, we stand in condemnation. You might think, hey, I'm a pretty good person and you know, I might sin once in a while, but God is going to overlook that. No. You know, you might think you have good morals. But even if you've broken God's law once, just once, if you stole something, if you lied, disobeyed your parents, coveted, lusted, hated someone, Jesus tells us that that's just like murder in your heart, then you've offended a holy God. And therefore, you fall short of God's standard and you're in trouble. You need help. Where will that help come from? 
can't do anything. Well, keep listening because help is coming. The relationship between this marriage union of Hosea and Gomer and God's union to his chosen people becomes very obvious, doesn't it? God chose Israel. He brought her into a marriage covenant with himself. And you see this kind of marriage language all through the scriptures. Jeremiah 2.2 says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Unless you think again that this is just for Israel, remember Paul's picture in Ephesians 5 when he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives? He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. In many places in the New Testament, Christ is called the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Here in Hosea, God is the husband, and Israel, and by extension, you and me, is the wife, the ones that commit the spiritual adultery. She rejected her covenant with the Lord. She broke his law and she went on to other lovers. So I wonder, fellow Christian, who in this story do you identify with? Do you see yourself as Hosea, who, you know, God asks to do hard things and and to love sinners? Well, God does ask you to do that, yes. But that's not the point of this story. You see, God is Hosea and we are the harlot. We are Gomer. You know, that name was probably a, a common name in those days, but for what it's telling us and what it means in our day, it fits. We are a Gomer. <laughs> we have broken the law. We have broken the covenant. We have been unfaithful to the divine husband. That's one thing that struck me this week, how much like Gomer I am. God married us when we were unclean. And then he knew we would be unfaithful over and over again. And even though he knew that, he called us, chose us. And so this applies to me, to us, to the church, to God's people. Will we be found faithless or faithful? That's the question. So dear Christian friend, have you been half-hearted in your love? Have you left your relationship with God on the back shelf, just in the back room there somewhere, thing that you never get to while you've gotten your kicks with other things. That's what adultery is, isn't it? Only you know what those other things are. Could be your career, could be your leisure activities, it could be your relentless pursuit for more stuff. What are the gods, the other gods that you have put before God? Remember that first commandment? What are the things in your life that take up the majority of your thoughts, of your attention, of your affections? If you have committed spiritual adultery, the warning here is to not keep going. Stop. Return to God. He will not gloss over sin. His character, his justice, his love demands that sin be punished. And we need to be reminded of that. Hosea is doing that for us. But making the transition here, the amazing thing about this story is that it doesn't end there. The amazing thing about God is that it keeps going. He doesn't pronounce judgment and then stop. God pronounces judgment against sin, but then he turns right around and he makes a complete reversal and he gives hope. Right smack in the middle of this unfaithfulness and harlotry and judgment, there will be a righteous punishment for sin, yes. But Hosea also shows God's amazing love for sinners. And this is what we really need to
to hear. Yes, we need to hear about God's judgment because without hearing that, we have no need for God's grace and God's mercy. But we also need to hear that God, about God's amazing love for sinners. And we get a hint of that right at the end of chapter one. Look at how he does it. This is brilliant. You know, only God could think of this. Do you remember the names of the children? Well, look at how he turns everything upside down. Look at right at the end of chapter one, in verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, remember that's what he named one of the children, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be not scattered anymore, will be gathered, gathered together. And they will appoint for themselves one leader. Oh, that points to Christ. And then they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then chapter 2, verse 1, Say to your brothers, Ami, am I, and to your sisters, Ruhama. Remember before it was lo am I, lo Ruhama? Lo is just, it negates something. It's like un in an English word. Just negates what it's going to say after that. Now that's gone. Changes their names. Third child was called not my, not my people. And now he says, you will be sons of the living God. The first child was called God will scatter. Now it says, the sons will be gathered together. And the second child, the daughter, was called lo ruhama, not pitied, not mercy, remember? No mercy. But it says in 2.1, say to your sister's ruhama, she has obtained mercy. And he talks about this change of heart starting in chapter 2, verse 14, and brings it home in verse 23. So look at chapter 2, verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Isn't that a great reversal? Doesn't that give us great hope that we don't have to stay in that condition? God promises judgment for disobedient, oh yes. But he also provides hope. For restoration. He's a God of love. He will not turn back on his covenant that he made with his people. He makes a total about face here and turns a, a present curse for Israel into a future blessing for the church and I believe for Israel as well. That's the nature of the God we serve. God will not give up on his people. He will give an opportunity for them to repent. To put it in the words of Hosea, remember the picture of the prostitute there in 2.14? I will, I will allure her, he says there. Verse 14 of chapter 2. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, as a door of hope. So for God's people, judgment is never the last word. There's always a promise of hope, always a promise of restoration. When we own up to our sin, when we repent of it, we will be restored. That's God's promise. Our God is a God of forgiveness and of mercy and of grace. Chapter 3 goes back to the story of Hosea and Gomer to summarize what we've just learned about the love of God. Gomer has gone and become a prostitute and committed adultery. Now look what God says to Hosea there in chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. They love the world, love the things that the world offers, the things that taste good from the world. 
And so I bought her for myself, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you. God tells Hosea to buy his wife back. Evidently, Gomer has gone so far down that she's become a slave. See that in verse 2, I bought her for myself. Maybe even a slave to some ancient day pimp. So she, she went absolutely to the lowest point. She's been totally degraded. And since she'd committed adultery, you'd think Hosea would have no more obligations to her. He'd be free to move on, right? Wrong. According to the law, Hosea could have stoned his wife. But God says, go back to her. Go buy her back. Go show your love to your wife again. It's a beautiful picture of God's love for us. God will not give up on us. Never. When you just stop to think about what God is asking Hosea to do, you catch a glimpse into what God's love for us is like. James Montgomery Boyce called this the greatest chapter in the Bible. Pretty amazing assertion. Because it portrays, he says, the greatest story in the Bible. The death of Christ for his people. Here's how it's like that. Gomer stood condemned, just like we stand condemned. But God says, go again, love her, get her back, whatever it costs. God loves us. God loves his children just like that. Just like God asked Hosea to do, he steps into the slave market to buy back people enslaved to sin. Instead of sending Hosea, he sends his son. What's the price? The blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the extent of God's love. When it says God so loved the world, that's what it means. God loved the world in this manner. This is the kind of love with which he loved the world. So listen, we are Gomer. When all seemed lost, God sent Jesus to buy his people at the cost of his son's life. We were naked, and he came and clothed us with the perfection, with the righteousness of his son. And so Hosea is a story that pictures what God has done for you and for me if we repent and if we trust in his son. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Does that sound like Gomer? Christ died for us. Well, the story of Hosea is a story of God's judgment against sin, but it's also a story of God's love for people who are undeserving of his love. So the question is, where do you fit in the story? Maybe you're caught in the, in the web of sin, and this message from Hosea has, has caused you to realize that you've been unfaithful to God. Maybe that you're caught up in the pursuits that our world values, things like pleasure or ambition or possessions or the pursuit of money. Maybe you've just plain been ignoring God and you've been getting your kicks somewhere else. All those things can be put into the category of spiritual adultery, of faithlessness. You've been unfaithful in your covenant commitment with God. You've broken your vows to God and you've exchanged them with something that just might give you a temporary thrill. You need to take this warning from God seriously that God will not leave sin unpunished. He's a jealous God. He's a just God. He's deserving of all the glory. What place does God have in your life? 
Is he in the center? Is he, does he pervade every part of your life or is he just one of many parts? One whom you try to fit in somewhere in your list of priorities. Listen, God wants nothing less than total commitment to him. He doesn't want you to share your allegiances with anyone else. One of the avenues and one of the, the, the places that he has designed to help you live out your Christian faith is with God's people in this place that we call the local church. And so what place, I ask you, do God's people have in your affections? Are you a member of the church that you call your home church? That's why we have membership in this church, why we value membership. It's a way of having you identify and make a, a, a mutual commitment and be accountable to God's people in God's place, in the, in the, in the place that he has given us to live out our Christian lives. Perhaps you've been challenged by this, this, this morning by your allegiances, by your loyalties. Well, the message of Hosea is that you can come back to God. The good news is that there is hope. Even though you may have played the harlot in your relationship with God, and all of us have to some degree, haven't we? The good news is that there is hope. He wants you back. Just name your sin. Confess your sin. Turn away from it and renew your covenant marriage to God. You know how God provides a way for you to come back? Well, there's a hint that we're given here in Hosea 11, chapter, in chapter 11, verse 1. There, just one little comment. He says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, Luke picks that up later on. This points back to God's delivery of Israel from Pharaoh. When he called them out of Egypt, he calls Israel my son. But if we were to read the rest of chapter 11, we would see that Israel failed as God's son. But this verse also points forward to another son that was called out of Egypt. Remember, right after the death of King Herod? You can read about that in Matthew 2. But while Israel failed as God's son, God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, succeeded. He was completely, 100% obedient. He was completely faithful. He was without sin. And because of that, he was then able to suffer He was able to atone for your sins, for your acts of spiritual adultery through his perfect life, through his sinless death on the cross. And so Hosea's love points squarely at God's love shown through his son. And because of his love, you can repent and turn to God. Maybe you think your sin is too big. And I believe there might be some people here like that today. You think you've gone too far. The stuff you've been involved in, God will never take me back. To you, I want to assure you on the authority of God's word, don't let thoughts of your own failures, of your own disloyalty hold you back. Gomer's story is for you. She had sunk to the lowest level. She couldn't have been shamed anymore. Yet it says God allured her. So if you think that you are so deeply caught up in sin that God can't forgive you anymore, My advice to you is to run to God. Repent. Look to Christ. Believe on him. God wants to play the part of the unfaithful, loving husband to you. Hosea is a story of God's love for people who haven't been faithful. And he wants to restore you to that original condition when you first made your vows to him. He took the vows first, remember? And then you responded. You received him. Before, you were disobedient. You were hopeless. 
You were dead in your transgressions, dead in your sins. But just like God gives Hosea's children a new name, he has given you a new name. That name is Christian. You belong to Christ. Remember the price that God paid to buy you. Remember God's mercy. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's amazing love. And then determine, with God's help and in God's power, to be wholehearted and to be unwavering and to be faithful and to be loyal in your commitment to him. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask musicians to come and lead us in singing a hymn that talks about God's amazing love. It's undeserved love for those who were once guilty but now are under no more condemnation. That's the God we serve. That's the God who loves us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, today we have been amazed by your love. We are grateful for it. Lord, we have, as we've looked at these verses, as I've read the entire book this week and been brought low by my sin, Lord, we collectively, collectively today have been humbled by your or by our own unworthiness and by your grace. But we thank you that you have not left us there. For us that have repented and believed on your Son, Lord, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've called us back to yourself through your Son. We thank you for your great love that reaches out to undeserving sinners. Thank you for your kindness, for your compassion, for your mercy, for your steadfast and undying, covenant-keeping, amazing love. And it's the name of our Savior and Lord that we pray. Amen.